Hi, and welcome to Tribeca Community Church's Sermon Podcast. We hope this resource draws you closer to God and helps you grow in your faith. This Sunday, Dr. Randy Berkner brought us a message from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Not sure what kind of expectations you had when you came into this place, when you decided to tune in online. I don't think there are many of God's people who encountered the presence of a holy God who were always just expecting it when it happened. There were a number of people who were just going about their business, going about their day, and the presence of a holy God overtook them. I invite you to take the elements that are there, your chairs, and be seated. Maybe you were just showing up at church this morning because that's the routine. Maybe you're just tuning in online because it's a Sunday morning and that's just what we do these days. But maybe this morning, the presence of a holy God could overtake us. And maybe this morning we could adjust our expectations to encounter a God who is open to us, who is near to us. You see, our God is the way maker, but not just by puppet mastering and orchestrating circumstances. Our God is the one who said, in the midst of brokenness and pain and anguish and loss and sorrow and frustration, I am entering into the middle of that. And our God opens up and pours out to us. And this morning we have the opportunity to encounter the presence of a holy God who has made himself near to us in the midst of our sorrows and our brokenness and our questions and our hurt and all the stuff that we're dragging into this building today. It's a good and right thing for us to be able to do this, to celebrate that our God has entered into this with us, is near, is a way maker. The presence of the living God is here. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious and holy God, we are thankful today that you have seen fit to not leave us where we are, to not create a world and then let it to spin and out of control under its own devices, but that you are a God who has seen the pain, you have heard the cries of your children, and you are entering into the midst of this. And so whether or not we come in to this place today, far from you, angry at you, hurting this morning, celebrating this morning, we come with this weight of your glory that somehow in the midst of ordinary, everyday things is encountering us. Everyday things like bread and cup. And so we ask that you would take these everyday, ordinary things and that you would pour out your spirit upon them. 
Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ and pour out your spirit upon us that we might become your holy people, renewed according to your vision, fully devoted according to your way, set apart for your purposes in this world, to demonstrate by our very lives that we are the people who are captured by the presence of a holy God. We thank you for these gifts. We thank you for the kind of God you are who would stand in our presence even on a very ordinary day. So brothers and sisters, it is good and right for us to remember that on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples. He gathered with them. He was near to them. The presence of a holy God was not far. Jesus took bread and we need to give him thanks for it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body that is given for you. Every time you do this, remember me. Let's remember the nearness of God today. After supper, Jesus took the cup. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my blood that establishes a new covenant. Every time you do this, remember me receive the presence of God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Having a little COVID problem this morning. <laughs> well, good morning, and uh, what a pleasure it is for me to stand in this sacred place. Uh, been 19 years since I stood here to preach, and uh, I'm tempted to reminisce a little bit, but I don't have time to do that, and you'd rather me not do that. 
But it's so good to uh, be a part of this church and to uh, sit under the leadership of Pastor Sean and Tim. And haven't you enjoyed Christ the King series thus far? We're going to venture away from uh, the Matthew accounts this morning and uh, look at this passage in Gospel, Gospel of John. But uh, I just want to say thank you, Shauna, for the privilege of uh, this opportunity this morning. Could we pray together briefly? Father, this is sacred place for all of us. And we are in your presence today. And we anticipate that uh, you're going to speak now through your servant and through your word. And we open our hearts, give to each of us a receptive spirit, not only to hear the word, but to be a doer of the word as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All of us know Murphy's Law, no doubt. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And if there is ever a place where Murphy's Law is on full display, it is at a wedding venue. <laughs> I could write a book uh, on the many unscripted, jaw-dropping mishaps that have taken place during sacred ceremonies. During my retirement, I think I may ought to do that. Murphy is never on the guest list, but he always seems to show up. If I were to write a book about all the things I have witnessed in wedding ceremonies, there would be tales of candles that uh, lit the bride's veils. I could uh, tell you about fainting bridesmaids who locked their knees. I could talk to you about falling potted plants. Even a nauseous bridesmaid who uh, tossed her cookies in the center aisle. Sorry about that. That's it, kind of an awful thought this morning, isn't it? But these are just to name a few. But without a doubt, the book's most compelling chapter would be that of Tammy's wedding. At the most inopportune time, I uh, had invited uh, her, her dad and her her, her along with her dad to come forward and to stand before me and let me back up to say our, our wedding music that day was a bagpipe and the, uh, the sanctuary was kind of like this had a lot of brick, brick and mortar and so it, it reverberated quite a bit and uh, before um, the service began I noticed that the little uh, ring bear was fidgeting with the rings and and I was a little concerned about him losing those rings. And sure enough, just before the service started, um, the bagpiper decided that she had to find the rings that the ring bearer had dropped. And she was wearing full kilt and all. And so she was on her hands and knees looking for the rings before the service started. I think she was showing a bit more anatomy than she really intended to. But everything was going good after that for a while. We, we had uh, uh, the bride and the, the bride's father standing before me. And I asked that question that every minister asks at a wedding ceremony. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And about that time, when all eyes are focused on the father of the bride, his tuxedo pants popped and they fell to his ankles. <laughs> No kidding. Honest truth. I'm not exaggerating. All I, everybody just let out a collective gasp. And the gasp soon became giggles. 
And I was starting to giggle inwardly, and, and instinctively I didn't know quite what to do, so I said, let us pray. <laughs> and I prayed, Lord, thank you that he's not wearing tidy whities <laughs> No, no, I didn't pray that at all. But I did pray, Lord, help me keep my composure. I was about to die, and I knew if I met Debbie's eye, she was the uh, unofficial wedding coordinator that day, she was in the sound booth, and I knew that if I met her eye, I'd probably lose it. And I looked back there, and I didn't see her. And after the ceremony, I said, where were you? And she said, I was laying on the floor, rolling in laughter. <laughs> yeah, Murphy showed up that day. Well, Murphy also made an appearance at the wedding that described here in John chapter 2, today's scripture lesson. And to fully appreciate what's going on here, we need to lay aside our, our modern uh, wedding ideas, our customs of these days, and learn more about uh, marriages in ancient Israel. Marriage in those days were typically arranged, and the prospective groom brought a bride price uh, to the father in accordance with the father's wealth to kind of make up for the loss of a worker in the household. And after a, a legally binding contract was signed, the couple was betrothed and the, the consummation waited uh, until the first night of the wedding feast. And there was a celebration that lasted for seven days. So you have the three C's of the ancient marriage. You have the contract, the consummation, and the celebration, and what a celebration it was. The wedding feast typically took place in the home of the groom, and guests would consume lots of food, lots of wine, as they listened to music and as they sometimes danced. So when Jesus and his disciples arrive on this scene, apparently it's a few days into the celebration because the wine is running out. Keep in mind that the customs of that day required a feast of roasted lambs and herbs, bread and lots of wine for not only drinking, but for food preparation. So with this cultural context in mind, I want us to lean into the scripture and see today a king who speaks to commoners. Again, the wine ran out, so Murphy is on the scene. And what follows is an interesting interaction, an exchange between Mary and her son Jesus. She reports to him the refreshment shortage problem. They have no more wine. And his response is something like this, Mom, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. And you can sense here his reluctance. But boy, can you sense her insistence, persistence. I think it's one thing to be mothered, it's quite another to be smothered. <laughs> and I think he felt smothered by his mother that day. I believe that uh, he felt pressed into a public ministry prematurely. But Mother Mary presses on, advising the servants, do whatever he tells you. And somewhat reluctantly, perhaps, Jesus proceeds to give instructions. Fill those six stone water jars with water. It was no small task, for each of them would hold 20 to 30 gallons. But I want you to notice what they did. 
They didn't argue with Jesus with the assignment about the assignment. They didn't complain that it was too difficult. They didn't complain that no one else was working that day. The gospel writer says that they filled them to the brim. That's exactly what Jesus told them to do. No shortcuts. Obedience to the nth degree. And Jesus went on to say in the scripture, John records, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. I believe John beautifully captures their obedient spirit, their attitude, in a simple yet profound statement. He says, they did so. And what did Jesus do in response to their perfect obedience? Well, in the words of the late Paul Harvey, you know the rest of the story. Jesus turned this water into award-winning wine. What a day, a day that no one there would ever forget. But I believe this isn't just a narrative of what Jesus did. It's a story of what Jesus does. His first miracle, I believe, gives us a glimpse of his modus operandi, his mode of operation. I've thought about this for a while. I've studied the scripture at length about this, and I think perhaps it would be a stretch to call it a prototypical miracle, but it sure seems to be a harbinger of things to come. Uh, the pattern is like this. Jesus usually enlists the cooperation of others, those who are obedient to the nth degree to perform the miraculous. Not always, but usually. John's gospel offers some examples. I don't have time to uh, go through all of them, but let's take just three of them, if we will, please. In John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. It's uh, the miracle where the little boy said, well, everybody loafs and fishes. You know, there are five loaves and two fish. And on this occasion, Jesus not only uh, takes it, in, involves uh, the little lad uh, and partners with the little lad, but he also enlists the help of his disciples here. He said, have the people sit down, distribute the food among them. And you know the rest of the story. They, they ate and ate and ate and had baskets full of food left over. John chapter nine, the healing of the man who was born blind. The Bible says Jesus spat on the ground, he made some mud and put it on the man's eyes, but he didn't stop there. He told the blind man to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam. The blind man obeyed and the word says that he came home seeing. And finally, one of my all time favorite scriptural narratives, the raising of Lazarus, Jesus' friend from the dead in John chapter 11. Jesus stood before the tomb, containing the body of this one who had been lifeless for four days. And once again, he enlists the cooperation of those around him. Take away the stone, he cried. And they obeyed and stood in amazement as Jesus called forth his friend. The Bible says also that Lazarus came forth with grave clothes on wrapped hand and foot with linen until Jesus gave the order, take off the grave clothes and let him go. What I'm saying this morning is that these onlookers became eyewitnesses to miracles. 
Why? Because they did what Jesus told them to do. Christ the King could have performed these miracles all alone, and sometimes he did, but he usually partners with others, obedient sons and daughters of God, to do the miraculous. And so I would echo Mary's words to the servants today, do whatever he tells you. Scripture and experience have taught me that obedience is the key to seeing Jesus do something miraculous. A few years ago, in fact, it's been several years ago now, my good friend and my fishing partner, Dr. Terry Toller, wrote an inspirational song entitled, He Still Speaks. It's true. The Christ who spoke then still speaks today. He speaks through a variety of mediums. He speaks, of course, through uh, the divinely inspired scriptures, with which what we say in the manual is, we believe inherently reveals the will of God concerning us in all things necessary for salvation. And by the way, concerning the Bible, complaining about a silent God while your Bible is closed is like complaining about getting a text when your phone is turned off, like complaining about not getting a text. God speaks. He speaks through preachers and teachers who correctly handle the word of truth. Dr. Earl Lee, uh, the late Earl Lee, used to pastor Pasadena, California, First Church. He used to say that God oftentimes speaks in those or through those who are closest to us. And for him, that was his precious wife, Hazel. God uses a number of ways, perhaps dreams, a number of ways to, to speak to us. Do whatever he tells you. Occasionally, as we discovered in our Sunday school lesson a few weeks ago, God speaks to his people with a dramatic display of power. On Mount Sinai, thunder, lightning, a smoke-filled mountain. All this was in an effort to accomplish his purpose of displaying his power. But usually, he speaks in a still, small voice. Haven't you found that to be the case? When he speaks to us, it's often that voice in our heart and in our head that is whispering to us. Sometimes it's a comforting word. Aren't you glad? We need a comforting word these days. Sometimes it's him saying, I am with you, and if I am with you, you need not be afraid. Sometimes it's a convicting word. Sometimes it's a guiding word. The psalmist reminds us that the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. In his book entitled Whisper, Mark Batterson says, listen closely, if you aren't willing to listen to everything God has to say, you eventually won't hear anything he has to say. If you want to hear his comforting voice, you have to listen to his convicting voice. And here's what I really want you to lean into. And it's often what we want to hear least that we need to hear the most. Amen and ouch. It's been my experience that the voice of God seems to stretch us. We like our comfort. 
We like, uh, well, after all, we do have chairs called Lazy Boys. <laughs> uh, we, we don't like to be moved out of our comfort zone. But it's been my experience that most often when Jesus is speaking to us, it's to get us off zero and to move us forward. It's to get us moving oftentimes toward lost and broken people. I love um, Eugene Peterson's definition of discipleship. He said, discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. It's not a class to be completed. It's not a, a box to be checked. But a life to be lived consistently doing whatever he tells us to do. Now, whatever is a word that has, whose meaning, or which meaning has changed across the years. Uh, the last two decades, it's really changed. How many of you despise the word whatever? Raise your hand. Isn't that annoying? Uh, in the Marist College polls of 2009 and 2010, whatever was voted as the most annoying word in conversation. They didn't poll me, but I would have certainly said, yes, that's it. So with my apologies to those who still say, whatever, I can assure you that the whatever of Scripture means no restrictions. <laughs> Anywhere, anytime, anything, that's what I am willing to do when you speak to me. Now, his directives may at times appear to be foolish and unreasonable. After all, Jesus said, fill the jars with water. There are a lot of questions we have when we get directives from the Lord that just seem to be unreasonable. When we get nudged out of our comfort zone and we, we start thinking, what am I going to look like if I do that? Well, I don't have an answer of what that's going to look like down the road, but here's what I believe. We won't have all the answers before we act, but I believe that it's often through taking action that we discover some of those answers that we might have on the front end. Let me give you a personal example, and in doing so, I'm violating a homiletical principle. Never, never uh, speak of yourself in an illustration in positive terms. <laughs> but let me go ahead and do it. I, I wish I could say this was always what I do, by the way, okay? Uh, several years ago now, it must have been probably 2004 or 5, I'm sorry, 2013, 2013, uh, the Lord began to impress upon me. He didn't speak to me in audible terms, but he been, began to impress upon me uh, that we ought to launch a cowboy church for the country western culture in Arkansas. I didn't, um, I didn't know how many cowboys. I had not even done uh, a demographic study to see if it'd be feasible. But I began to sense very strongly that this is what the Lord wanted us to do. As superintendent, I was almost uh, hesitant to bring the idea before the advisory board. I thought maybe they would call for uh, a recall on me or something. <laughs> but after a while, I... I, I went to a pastor on our district who pastored a church, a traditional church, and his ministry didn't seem to be going very well at that point. It was kind of stagnating, and uh, he'd indicated that he was kind of uh, burning out. And so I knew that he had been a bull rider as a teenager. 
And I figure he knows something about cowboys. He indeed is a cowboy. And uh, I talked with him about it. And at first he said, no, 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 I don't think so. The whosoever will of the gospel, we don't need to be focusing on a certain affinity group. But after a while, we went down to Dallas, Texas, and we saw some cowboy churches in operation. He got excited and came back, and, and we launched what we call a community interest meeting to see how uh, we would begin. And uh, it wasn't long until the, the 60 people showed up at the community meeting, and, and he asked them, when should we start the church? And they said, next Sunday. <laughs> and so from that original 60, within the first year, we had about 200 people gathered together. The second year, we had like 400 people gathered together. And within a matter of four years, the church was running 800. It now runs 1,000, and they've started three other cowboy churches. Now, I say that to say this. Who would have thunk it that God would have spoken to me about a cowboy church? I don't know how you describe me, but I don't describe myself as a cowboy. I'm not sure if I'm a yuppie or a chumpy or what am I? What am I? But I don't even like the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> And for God to speak to me about starting a cowboy church, I thought, this is crazy. But in the end, he affirmed that I was doing what, exactly what he wanted me to do. Uh, in fact, that church has led our denomination for two or three years in new members added by profession of faith. I said I violated a homiletical principle, and I have. And I said, I, I wish I could say all the time I'm obedient like that. But the truth is that more times than I would like to admit, my obedience has been delayed obedience. And in fact, some people would call delayed obedience disobedience. Do whatever he tells you to do. I think we overthink God's directives at times. Um, I learned several years ago a principle that I call the lag time principle. Some of you may have been exposed to this, but I've come to believe, I think it was Reuben Welch that said, I think, I think. <laughs> I think, I think that we are demonstrating our spiritual maturity as our lag time between that which we know to do and that time we actually act upon it starts shrinking. We are as it gets smaller, we are showing that we are maturing in Christ. And so, delayed obedience may be a sign that we have some work to do in the inner person. Whenever Christ the King speaks, our answer should obviously be, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. But how do we know his voice? Sometimes we just get these impressions, and how do we know it's his voice? Down in chapter 10 of John, he employs the analogy of the shepherd and his sheep. Jesus, of course, is the good shepherd. And the idea in John chapter 10 is that the sheep live so close to the shepherd that they know his voice and they listen to him. So it is intimacy with Jesus that enables us to know his voice. Christ the King will never also, never let us do, tell us to do anything that contradicts his essential nature, that is, holy love. 
And he will not tell us to do something that, that is in uh, contradiction to his written word. Years ago, I had a couple who came to me and said they prayed through on living together and sleeping together. <laughs> and uh, that simply wasn't true. And I, I could have just sat there in that counseling session and said, oh, okay, I don't want to ruffle the feathers here. <laughs> but I had to say with integrity that couldn't be the voice of the Lord because he would never ask you to do that. It's in violation to his written word. I've been studying the book of Samuel lately. And Samuel was a superhero of the Old Testament. He was a prophet and a priest and a judge over Israel. And I believe we find greatness early on in his life. We find the key to his greatness early. You may recall the story when he was just a youngster. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. The Bible says it was, this took place when the word of the Lord was rare. Didn't hear from him very often in those days. But the boy Samuel heard what he thought was Eli's voice calling him. Not one time, but three times. Realizing that it was the Lord calling the boy, Eli told him to go lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And he did just that. It's that Samuel spirit. It's that eagerness to hear him speak. It's that desire to do whatever he tells us to do that puts us into a position to see God do some extraordinary things. I've been challenged recently by a quote that I ran across from N.T. Wright. This quote, uh, my turn your world upside down if you think about it too seriously. He said, the work of salvation, now we evangelicals, we holiness people tend to think of the work of salvation as trips to the altar and individual life change, that kind of thing. But N.T. Wright says, the work of salvation in its full sense is about whole human beings and not merely souls. About the present and not simply the future, about what God does through us, not what God does in and for us. You see, we have been saved from something to something. There's a verse in Deuteronomy. You haven't been there for devotions lately, so let me just share with you what this verse 623 in Deuteronomy says. He brought us out from there to bring us in. He brought us out of captivity to bring us in to promised land living. And promised land living is living in total obedience to the God, to the Christ, the King who speaks to us. To follow him wholeheartedly, without reserve, to the nth degree, that is what salvation is all about. I truly believe God wants to use each of us. Christ speaks to common people like you and me. Abraham Lincoln said that God must love the common people. He made so many of us. But this king speaks to us commoners. And when he does, 
it would behoove us to lean into that word. When it often sounds a little ridiculous, when it stretches us, when it calls us to do something that might embarrass us. When we do that, I truly believe the kingdom of God breaks in every time. When we obediently do whatever he tells us to do. Yeah, Murphy showed up that day at Cana in Galilee, but Jesus showed out. The word says he revealed his glory and the disciples put their trust in him. That's what he did. And that's what he does whenever we do whatever he tells us to do. Would you stand with me this morning? I've asked the guys to, to sing a song, that song that I referenced earlier. He Still Speaks, Terry Toller's song. And as they sing it this morning, let's ask the Lord to give us clarity on what he is saying to us today. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to worship with us next Sunday, we'll be having an online service at 8 a.m., which you can access through our Facebook page, and two on-campus services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. For more information, check out our website. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you next week.